Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. That was the sound of one of the most iconic aircraft ever flown by the Royal Air Force. Although not quite the household name that the Spitfire has been, it has always been a crowd favourite at air shows. As well as the immense noise generated by its four Rolls-Royce Olympus engines, which has thrilled children up and down the country, it was incredibly agile in the air for an aircraft that is 30 metres long and has a 30 metre wingspan. This is because its revolutionary delta wing design allowed its bat-shaped frame to bank, meaning to turn, incredibly sharply, bringing the aircraft back round to fly over the crowds once again. Capable of exceeding 600 miles per hour and with a 3,000 mile range, although it was a bomber, it could outturn fighters at altitude, straining at the limits of their capability. I am talking, of course, about the Vulcan. But there was a darker reason for this nimble giant to be brought into being. The Vulcan, first imagined in the early 1950s, entered service at a time in history when humanity stood upon the brink of annihilation. The Western powers and the Soviet Union were squaring off against each other in the early stages of a Cold War that was to last a further 40 years. The atom had just been split, granting each side unimaginable destructive power, and game theory dictated that the only defence was to be a credible nuclear threat yourself. And the powerful yet acrobatic Vulcan was to form Britain's entire nuclear deterrent. It needed to be capable of penetrating hostile defences and making its way hundreds of miles under fire to deliver its dreaded payload. To work as a deterrent, it needed to be credible, and so it is a stunning example of aerospace engineering. Fortunately, the Vulcan never had to fulfil its primary role. It did see action in the Falklands War in the 1980s, operating as a conventional bomber, and its usefulness 30 years after it initially entered service is a testament to the engineers who originally designed and built it. But then, with the Cold War over, it was retired from operational duty and moved to a flight display team before being grounded in the early 1990s by a society rightly looking to enjoy a peace dividend following decades of runaway military spending. But the iconic aircraft still had legions of fans, all who remembered going to air shows in their youth, and a charity got together to return the Vulcan to the sky. After an incredible journey, obtaining funding, acquiring parts, and seeking permissions, they finally achieved their goal. The last airworthy Vulcan, the XH558, was renamed the Spirit of Great Britain and returned to the skies in 2007. It wowed crowds for a further eight years before being ordered to the ground again, it had not reached the technical limitations of its flying life, but there it has stayed. And probably, the last of the Vulcans will never fly again. But its journey is not yet over. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. In this episode we follow the journey taken to restore the Vulcan to flight by Dr. Robert Fleming of the Vulcan to the Sky Trust. 
and his efforts over a decade to bring together a team of like-minded individuals on this labour of passion. We will also learn about new plans for this iconic aircraft and how the Trust hopes to inspire future generations into aerospace engineering and teach about the possibilities of greener air travel in the future. So, winding back to the tail end of the Cold War, after the end of service in 1984, Vulcans flew as part of a display team until 1992, and then the government moved to end the programme. The public reaction was... A massive petition to Parliament. There were over 200,000 names gathered, which in a, in a world of paper was quite an achievement. A petition asking the government to keep the aeroplane flying, however, that was not successful. This is Dr Robert Fleming one of the leading figures in the Vulcan to the Sky Trust. From an early age, flying was in his blood. His mother was in the Women's Auxiliary Air Force in World War II, he joined the RAF section of the cadets, and passed his Cessna flying test before learning how to drive. He was, in his own words, always ever so impressed by the Vulcan. But... The aircraft was auctioned off. Bought, amazingly, for the princely sum of £25,000 by... Sea Walton Limited. Uh, she had her final flight in RAF service on the 23rd of March 1993. Although he ended up doing a doctorate in nuclear physics and joined first IBM and then Cisco, he always kept his hands in at flying. And since Robert had been following the fate of the Vulcan for a number of years by this point, I decided to take my young son out of school that day and we perched on a hill just outside RAF Benson, which was the initial point for the Falcon's last tour of the country. And uh, yes, I saw her last flight and promised myself I'd see what I could do to get her back flying again. He knew he had a new goal, to save the Vulcan. The early stage of the project covered the period 1997 to 2002. And when Robert embarked on this path, the first port of call was checking the civil aviation regulations to learn what would be required. And it was very clear from uh, reading those that we weren't going to go get anywhere without the support of primarily British Aerospace or BAE systems that is now. So the first couple of years of um, activity were geared at putting together a plan that could convince British Aerospace BA systems that um, it was right to support the restoration of XH558 to flight. The regulations actually demand that all of the companies that provide safe flight safety critical systems, such as BAE Systems, Rolls-Royce, Dunlop Smiths, a whole lot of very familiar names, but they all have to sign up to what's known as an ongoing airworthiness design support. And that's a uh, regulatory factor, uh, factor without which you cannot fly. And by May of 1999, we'd reached the first milestone and British Aerospace said that, yes, subject to certain reasonable conditions, they would support the return of the Falcon to flight. And that was probably the first major milestone in our restoration plan. After this, inevitably, comes the question of funding the project. So things like the technical survey of the aircraft, 
the strip down of the aircraft to remove all of the system components, etc. That was funded by Seawalton Limited very generously. Uh, but it became very clear that fairly large sum of money was required for the actual restoration itself. Our original quotations were around two million. By the time it got to 2003, the estimate was 3.75 million. And the trust decided to apply to the Heritage Lottery Fund for a major grant, 2.7 million pounds. They were rejected. And the public reaction to that rejection was enormous. And as a result, the Lottery Fund said to us, let us tell you what you need to put in your application to have a much better chance of getting a grant, which is, of course, what we did. But in December 2003, they were approved. The 2.7 million from the lottery was secured, an additional 1 million from the public was raised, and in 2005, the charity purchased the aircraft. Then comes the major service. This is a comprehensive check, stripped down, inspect, rectify, and rebuild. The inspection actually generated a list of about three and a half thousand individual faults on the machine that needs to be rectified. All sorts of different uh, items, missing rivets, corrosion, slight dents, insulation that had gone on wiring. You could, a whole range of different things, all individually identified and all fixed. We were very lucky in that at the time Seawalton Limited purchased the aircraft, they also purchased the remaining RAF Vulcan spares, about 800 tonnes of spares. Amongst which was a really important set of spares that made the whole project possible, without which the Vulcan would have ended its flight life in 1993. And this was the eight zero-time Rolls-Royce Olympus 202 engines that were part of that 800 tonnes. Eventually, we discovered that Rolls-Royce said they would not have allowed the aircraft to fly without zero-time engines, so that was actually a critical factor. In 2006, disaster nearly struck, as the trust almost ran out of money. But another swell of public support again brought the funding needed. And finally, in 2007, the Vulcan flew. I think everybody would agree uh, that it was an inspiring sight to see the, the Vulcan fly. Not only is she very nimble uh, and a beautiful shape, but spectacularly loud. And of course, we have the famous Vulcan howl, the resonance from the air intakes, uh, which is uh, very well known. Then followed eight unforgettable years. The Vulcan flew 320 hours, exceeding a 250-hour promise made to the lottery nothing lasts forever. The Vulcan was designed at a time when aircraft were designed to have a safe life. Aeroplanes have to make a trade-off, design of aeroplanes has to make a trade-off between strength and weight and that compromise means that there's possibly less uh, structure than would be required for an aircraft uh, of infinite life. And the way they measured the aircraft's life is actually to put the structure, the airframe, into a rig, which basically simulated landings, flights, takeoffs over a huge number of cycles. And that's indeed what they did with the Vulcan. 
and uh, that provided a measure of the eventual structural life. They then factor this down by three. So they look to see when the frame is showing signs of the end of its life, take a third of that, and there you have the safe life. The XH558 was approaching that, and had two years remaining, the trust thinks. But the manufacturers called for an end to the adventure. And the final year was a major send-off. 2015 itself was an extraordinary year. Uh, we uh, agreed with the engineering authority, Marshall Aerospace, that we'd actually increased the number of flying hours that year from a normal 50 flying hours up to 75, so we could do some important things. Uh, we had uh, a couple of tours of the country, one to the V4 spaces and the other, uh, just before her final flight, we had a tour of the north of the country and a tour at the south of the country. And we uh, had the agreement of the Civil Aviation Authority that we could let people know the route that we sh she was flying so they had a final chance to see the aircraft. Uh, and we know because of uh, hits on our website that there were well over a million people who accessed the maps for her final two tours. The number of people watching the aircraft during that year was quite extraordinary. And that is why uh, XH558's final flight was done in some level of secrecy. We knew that we would be doing a final flight. We all, the board of trustees and myself, we all agreed that there needs to be one single final flight as the end of her flying career. The plan was to have the Vulcan take off from Doncaster Airport, but there was a problem. The police had spoken to their counterparts in the north and in the south of the country, all who had experience of the past tours. And said in their estimate we could expect upwards of 100,000 people to descend on Doncaster and that completely unacceptable to both local authority and to the police and indeed to the airport because it would stop normal aircraft operations there. So um, that was why we were um, forced to keep the date of the final flight really quite confidential. Uh, we did manage to get a few of our uh, volunteers and uh, uh, the press there, uh, but it was very limited and certainly the airport was desperately worried that the news would leak uh, because uh, an awful lot of people were watching what was, what, were, what was happening. And they actually kept the aircraft in the hangar until the moments before takeoff, so even watchers on the airport perimeter would not know what was to happen. Many were forced to miss the flight, and sadly, Robert was among them. I was being prepared myself for a uh, major heart operation down in London, so I missed the final flight myself. So, in some senses, I'm with all the other people who wished that they'd seen the final flight but couldn't. So rather memorable, memorable day from all points of view. In the eight years of flight, the Vulcan had cost 2.5 million per year and was seen by 2.5 million people per year. Robert says that one pound per smile isn't bad. It had also spent 7,000 tonnes of CO2 in that time. And this brings us to what might be the final phase of the Vulcan's life. In the lead-up to the Vulcan's last flying year, we were seriously considering what would happen after we ceased to fly. And there was a 
absolute agreement that there needed to be some form of legacy uh, to recognise the importance of the Valkan, all the work that had gone into her, and indeed uh, the amount of money that had been spent. But by the time we finished flying, we'd spent over, spent and raised over thirty million pounds, which is an enormous sum of money. So there was a very strong view that there needed to be some form of legacy. What emerged was a set of ideas based around telling the history of the Cold War, the Vulcan itself, and the people who supported it. The idea for the Vulcan experience was born. The experience we had with audiences at air shows gave us a surprising conclusion, and that's what the reaction of the young was when they saw the aircraft, not only in the sky, but on the ground. You'll have to remember that it's very unusual for youngsters to get up close with a large uh, aircraft and it really was quite an amazing reaction we saw and we couple that to the important need uh, to get youngsters involved with science, technology, engineering and maths, the so-called STEM subjects. So they went forward with a plan to set up both informal and more formal activities to inspire young people into STEM, but based around the aircraft and aviation. And in 2016, that's exactly what they did in Hangar 3 at Doncaster Airport. With really, really heartening success. So the, the idea evolved to build a, a, a legacy around uh, not only the history of the aircraft and its uh, uh, contribution to the Cold War, but also uh, looking to the future to inspire the young in engineering, technology and aviation. So that's really the origins for the Vulcan experience. Now Robert and the Trust want to set up a more permanent Vulcan experience, possibly opening as early as 2022. We're now four and a half years since the last flight of the Vulcan. Uh, where we are is that we've got a design for a new uh, hangar which will contain the Vulcan experience up at Doncaster Sheffield Airport. Uh, land has been acquired by the airport for the, the hangar. Uh, we've got a good idea about what we would do in it and we know how much it will cost. The current, current estimates including fit-out are around £4 million. What we've been doing in recent months is focused on how we would get the funding in place. Uh, we also will eventually fundraise uh, to close the gap uh, between the funds that we need and uh, the funds that we've got a hold on. And that will be the subject of a campaign which will launch later on this year. For further details on how to support this enterprise and inspire young people into STEM, please see our show notes. But the plans do not stop with the Vulcan experience. The Trust are now looking at something they call the Green Technology Hub. Over the years of the Trust's activities, the challenges facing the climate became ever more apparent. And it became very obvious that aviation is viewed as a major contributor uh, to climate change. It's not quite as bad as people think, but over time, assuming aviation grows at the rate that it uh, was supposed to before the pandemic, it does become a greater problem. Because of the energy density in hydrocarbon fuels, jet fuels, there's no real substitute for, for jet fuel. So the, the uh, aerospace companies are looking at all sorts of ways to reduce the contribution that aircraft are making to uh, climate change. 
And once we looked into this, we realized that there was a really important job of education here, telling the public about what is being done by engineers and designers to make flying a lot cleaner from a green point of view. Uh, some really exciting ideas. For example, the, the idea of electric-powered aircraft and indeed hydrogen-powered aircraft. Uh, but there is a, a real desire to remove uh, hydrocarbons from flying aircraft. Robert feels that there is a lot that can be passed on in this field, and it is something that the Trust would like to look into. And that's why we want to add what we've called the Green Technology Hub to what we're presenting in the Vulcan Experience. And it's a, it's a really exciting uh, proposition that I think will uh, be very interesting, not only for the general public, but importantly for, for youngsters again, because it's become very apparent that the young are very much aware of the world that the current generation may leave behind for them, a world that is getting hotter and, as a result, um, damaged. And we think that there's actually a great amount of interest in what we can tell people about the efforts being made to reverse this trend and to uh, become essentially zero carbon. I think it's a very important topic. For Robert, the whole story, from start to finish, is about the impact the Vulcan has on the public. One of the most rewarding things for me in all of this, recognising the fact that uh, it's been part of my life for the last 22 years, is the reaction from the public. Whenever they saw the Vulcan, whenever they see the Vulcan, there's this sense of amazement, joy, enthusiasm, pleasure, and just seeing the smiles on people's face when she flew by was, was uh, personally hugely rewarding. I tended to watch the audience whenever she was flying rather than watch the plane. And it was, uh, I, think, I think that's, for, for me personally, was the big, big thing, what, what the team and I have achieved in terms of bringing something extraordinary into people's lives. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. Our producers are Alex Conacher, Bernadette Ballantyne, Rian Owen, Ross McPherson, and Tim Sheehan. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher, Sound Engineering by Ross McPherson, Series Supervision by John Young, and our own Cold War artefact is Rory Harris. Special thanks to the Vulcan to the Sky Trust. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, or share us on Twitter and LinkedIn. <laughs>